Welcome to the Soil and Roots podcast, digging beneath the surface to uncover those hidden ideas that form us and the church and even our culture. I'm Brian Fisher. This is episode 50, Trapped in the System. We're continuing our exploration of the fourth key element of formation of discipleship, and that's intimacy. First, let's get some housekeeping out of the way. As a reminder, Soil and Roots is designed to be listened to in order, starting with, you guessed it, episode one. Some of you like to jump around or just listen to specific episodes, that's great. Just note that current episodes and seasons do build on earlier episodes and seasons. I occasionally throw in some bonus episodes designed to review previous material and set some more context for our journey. Those episodes are helpful if you want to go back and get your bearings on some previous topics. So, for example, episode 11, The Formation Conundrum, that sets up the five key elements of formation and the formation gap, which, of course, we've been exploring all season. Episode 14, Unbreak My Heart, introduces us to the concept of heart view as it relates to discipleship, and we dug into that in season two. Episodes 24 and 25 are great reviews, that's the world as best as I remember it, and so are episodes 31 and 33. Episode 46, The Discipleship Sandwich, really zooms out and gives us an entire picture of all three seasons so far. So those few episodes sort of work as cheat codes if you don't want to listen to each episode one by one. Anyhow, if you're just tuning in and wondering what in the world is the Forgotten Kingdom or Heartview or the Six Core Ideas, you might want to go back and start your journey at the beginning. The episodes are evergreen, so you're not going to miss anything if you just start over and take your time working through all 50 episodes so far. Alright, so let's continue our exploration of intimacy and why it's so essential for our discipleship. In season one, we talked about ideas of anthropology, what it means to be human, or more to the point, the unconscious assumptions we make about what it means to be human. Theologian James K.A. Smith proposed that modern Christianity actually has made some very wrong assumptions about what it means to be human. Humans are not primarily thinkers. We're not even primarily believers. We're primarily desirers. We're lovers. Yet according to Smith, modern Christianity functions as if we are primarily thinkers, or maybe believers, that most of our Christian experiences are based on presenting us with facts and information, and that we're formed more like Jesus based on our mental agreement to pieces of data. Smith suggests that modern storytellers and artists, marketers, advertising execs, are far more in tune with what it means to be human than many Christian institutions. That the shopping mall is more formative than the church building. We are what we desire. Or as one of the Smith's books says, we are what we love. At the same time, we've latched onto this somewhat novel concept that we as humans are governed not by facts, or perhaps not even by our beliefs, as we tend to define them, but we're defined by our ideas, unconscious, hidden assumptions and principles that power who we are. Philosopher Dallas Willard proposed that a true disciple is someone whose base ideas are progressively being transformed from dark to light, from bad ideas to God's really good ideas. So if Smith and Willard are right, in the very depths of who we are, in our guts, burrowed into the bedrock of our hearts, sit our desires and our ideas. And somehow these ideas and desires are commingled. They're deeply connected. They influence and impact each other. 
Willard went on to make some rather staggering claims about these ideas. He believed that evil spends most of its time and energy influencing idea systems, groups of interconnected and dependent ideas. The most efficient and dangerous way to steal, kill, and destroy is to promote idea systems that warp and corrupt and confuse the original idea system instituted before time began, and thus impact entire communities and cultures. In one sense, the forces of evil are crop dusters. They spread harmful assumptions through the air in the form of idea systems that harm large groups of people. So ideas are a really, really big deal that we hear almost nothing about in pop Christianity. If God's original idea system is designed for human goodness and flourishing, and any system that corrupts his is designed to destroy us, and evil primarily works in the realm of these idea systems, we might want to spend more time understanding and exploring these systems and how they work in our hearts, and importantly, how these idea systems change. If you check out the visual aid called Creation Picture 2 on the Resources tab at SoilandRoots.org, you'll remember that ideas exist in two places, in the air and in the soil. Ideas in the air are just that. They're the atmosphere into which we're born. If you were born in America, you were born into an atmosphere of ideas, such as freedom and rugged individualism, the American dream, bravery, equal rights for women, retirement as a life objective, and the almost ubiquitous availability of goods and services. We don't usually think about these things, they just are. They're the air we breathe. And we tend to transpose our ideas in the air onto everyone else and onto human history. We assume our atmosphere is just like everyone else's. It's a very human thing to do, but the reality is most of the ideas I just mentioned are actually very new in terms of human history and are still foreign in many places around the world today. We're also born into ideas in the air in relation to Christianity and our Christian experience. We assume these ideas to be good and true and accurate because, well, just because. Let's take the Bible, for instance. Everyone reads the Bible through a lens of ideas, unconscious assumptions. Some of our ideas are biblical. Some are traditional, some are cultural. We all come to the Bible with a set of presuppositions, a set of unconscious ideas about the point and the purpose of the Bible. We all engage the Bible through a set of idea filters. Here's one simple example of a Bible-related idea. Have you ever been told that the Apostle Paul wrote the majority of the New Testament? I have. Paul wrote around 75% of the New Testament. But that's not entirely accurate. In terms of number of books... Paul did write the majority of them. But what about the number of words? What about the actual percentage of content in the New Testament? In that case, Paul is not the author of the majority of the New Testament. The person responsible for writing the most words is actually Luke. Here's another example of an idea that influences our engagement with the Bible. Years ago, I was chatting with a very biblically literate friend, and he expressed some frustration that people are still writing all sort of books about the Bible. His view is that we now know all we need to know about it and that we simply need to spend more time in the Word and stop writing other books about it. Well, we should spend more time in the Word, but are we assuming the Bible has been fully explored? I find that idea rather disconcerting, maybe even arrogant. If we've mined even 5 or 10% of the Bible for all of its depth, wisdom, and mystery, I'd be shocked. Should we stop exploring and probing the depths of God's second book? Have we learned all we need to know about the created order? Have we learned all there is to know about biology or sociology or the human brain or the depths of the ocean? 
When we approach the Bible, do we approach it with the idea that everything that should be known about it is already known? Here's another one. If you've ever been trained to write or preach or teach or lead a Bible study, chances are you were instructed to present three things to your audience. Observation, interpretation, application. What does the text say? What does the text mean? What is the text telling me to do? This is by far the predominant and accepted approach to teaching the Bible today. Observe, interpret, apply. Chances are the overwhelming number of sermons and teachings you and your parents and probably your grandparents heard were based on this simple formula. In fact, if we aren't taught some sort of application at the end of a sermon, we kind of feel like we've been cheated. Someone needs to tell us what to do. All right, fair enough. But if the overwhelming majority of sermons are based on this formula, and that formula must include a charge to go and do something as a result of what we've just heard or read, what do our hearts begin to assume about the purpose of the Bible? What is our unconscious idea about the Bible? The answer is, it's an instruction manual. The Bible becomes a book of commands. Every verse, every passage, every chapter must contain something that I must apply in my life. The Bible says X, so I need to go and do Y. Then why is 40-some percent of the Bible written as narrative, as a story? Why is 30-some percent of the Bible poetry? When was the last time we read Dickinson or Whitman or Keats and walked away thinking, here are the three things I learned from this poem that I need to do this week? I don't think most people think the purpose of poetry is to instruct us on how to live our lives. Does the Bible contain instructions for living? Of course. But is that its sole purpose? Because if the only purpose of the Bible is to give us instructions, that sounds a lot like assuming human beings are primarily thinkers. Well, that idea presents some rather immediate problems. We love to read and quote Proverbs, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding, and all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Proverbs is filled with do this and good things will happen language, and do that and bad things will happen language. So we might presume that if we just do the right things, we're going to enjoy straight paths and peace and prosperity. But then Ecclesiastes comes along and takes a look at Proverbs and says, yeah, it doesn't always work that way. And then Job comes along and calls the whole mess into question. Okay, so maybe the Bible isn't just a book of commands, but it's certainly a book of beliefs. The Bible surely outlines what we should believe, and true enough, it does that. But if we're primarily lovers... If we're creatures of desire, if we're born into the world looking for someone looking for us, someone who will always be there for us, someone who deeply desires to have an intimate, trusted relationship with us, what if that is the core purpose of the Bible? What if the Bible is one of the ways the Creator intimately reveals Himself to us and invites us to intimately reveal ourselves to Him? What if the Bible is intended to capture our imagination, to enthrall us with its story, to mesmerize us with its artistry, its themes, its imagery, to provoke us to feel the joy and the heartbreak, the confusion, the jealousy, the passion of its characters? What if the primary purpose of the Bible is to form our desires, our loves, our ideas, to draw us into experiencing God? What if it isn't so much about us working on the Bible as the Bible working on us? So when we sit down to read the Bible or listen to a sermon, are we engaging simply to learn what to do or even what to believe? Or are we experiencing God as he reveals his heart to us 
and we to him. Which brings us to ideas in the soil. If ideas in the air are systems of ideas we're born into and they're present in culture and in our churches and most importantly in our families of origin, there's a subset of those ideas that seep down, way down, into the bedrock of our hearts. These are the ideas that mold and shape us. Back in episode 8, we talked about the three ways ideas are formed in our hearts. Initially, abruptly, and progressively. We're born with certain ideas baked in, and ideas can abruptly form or modify, usually through trauma or divine intervention. But most of the time, these unconscious assumptions and principles change slowly, progressively. Let's go back and review the six core ideas. We haven't talked about these in a while. There are dozens and dozens of categories of ideas and presumptions, assumptions, that sit in the depths of our hearts. But there are six categories that powerfully govern who we are and how we relate in the world. Here they are again. Ideas of identity, anthropology, value, power, purpose, and love. Who are we? What are we? What are we worth? What authority do we have? What is our purpose? And what do we love? These six core ideas form the structure, the basis, the foundation of every idea system. They form the basis of critical theory and woke ideology and Marxism and Buddhism and Islam. Every political ideology, every cultural ideology, every social structure, every religion, every institution is built on and manifests these six core ideas. Now, there's only one original idea system, and that's God's. And there's really no confusion or ambiguity about what the six core ideas are in his system. He clearly outlines his system in the Bible, and he actually gives us some pretty deep insight into it in creation as well. The confusion arises when our hearts embrace downstream derivative idea systems. Because every other system is derived from God's, every other system is a corruption, a malicious adaptation, a purposeful, harmful twist on his original ideas. Now, you and I are presented with alternative idea systems every day, all day, all the time. We can practice identifying idea systems whenever we want. The next time you watch a 15-second ad on social media, ask yourself the core questions. What is this ad telling me about who I am? What is it telling me about what I am? What's it telling me what I'm worth? What is it telling me about the power that I have? What's it telling me about my purpose? What is the ad telling me I should love? Every piece of music, literature, movie, TV show, sermon, political speech, book, video game, or app is promoting an idea system. Every single interaction we have with another person is promoting an idea system. Your personal story, your history, is filled with loads of people and a myriad of cultural mediums and messages influencing your heart's idea system. Now, if you're curious, just start a spreadsheet and map out the answers to the six core ideas in various idea systems. Think through the idea system behind critical theory or new age. If you really want to pick a fight with your family, pick the idea system of a political party. Write out the answers to the six core ideas according to what God has already revealed in his books, and then write out the answers from any other system. This isn't a bad idea. Maybe I'll turn it into another visual aid. Anyhow, we'll quickly discover just how radically different the kingdom of God's ideas are from every other system we find ourselves in. It's actually quite shocking. So, for example, a few of the questions like who are we and what are we and what authority do we have might be answered this way in the kingdom. We are God's crowning creation made in his image 
and were made to love and reign with him. Now answer the same questions in the idea system of critical theory. The answer might be, we are random products of evolution who are victims of oppression and we must take the power we deserve. Obviously, these are two radically different sets of answers. And the answers have enormous impact on how we relate to God and ourselves and others and the entire world around us. Now, at this point, you may be wondering what any of this has to do with discipleship and cultivating appropriate intimacy in five-element communities. What do idea systems have to do with becoming more like Jesus? Well, hear me out. We're going way deep into the soil now. Let's say you sat down and wrote out the answers to all six core ideas from your Christian perspective. In the idea system of Christianity, who am I? What am I? What am I worth? What power do I have? What's my purpose? And what do I love? Chances are what you write down would look very much like the lessons and things you've learned in church and Bible study and small group throughout your life. Very good. Chances are your answers are correct. They align with the idea system of Christianity. Now, what if I asked you to go back through the same six questions, but this time I asked you to quiet yourself, to lay aside the stock Christian answers and to write down your answers intimately and honestly? What if I asked you to answer these questions by looking at your eight indicators, what you think, what you feel, how you behave, how you relate to people, your health, your words, and how you manage time and money? Let's say on the first round you answered the idea, who am I? with the theologically correct statement, well, I'm a child of God. But when you talk to yourself, when you think about yourself, do you relate to yourself as if you're a child of God? Meaning, do you talk to yourself the way that Jesus would talk to you? Do you care for yourself as a loving father cares for his child? What are your thoughts about other people? Do those thoughts match what God thinks about them? If every person is made in the image of God and is a work of a divine artist and is utterly unique in all of human history, do you think about other people in that context, whether they're in Christ or not? There's an excellent chance that some of our honest, quiet, reflective answers based on our eight indicators are going to be different from our theologically correct answers. That's because the unconscious ideas that actually power our hearts don't always align with our beliefs. This is true for every person on the planet. If you want a visual reminder of how this works, there's a picture on the resources page called HeartView. You can download it for free. You'll see at the very center of who we are are our ideas and desires. And our beliefs sit on top of our ideas. So in my case, if I were to honestly assess my thought life, I admit I don't always think of myself as a child of God. I don't even address myself in those terms. I have difficulty seeing myself as God sees me. My thoughts about other people are often more kind than my thoughts about myself, but I have absolutely derided, devalued, and even murdered the character of other people in my thoughts. I have been woefully unkind to my own wife and sons at times in my thoughts. I know how to put on a good face and say all the right Christian things. I know how to play the part, but does my heart, in its base ideas and desires, truly seek the goodness of my neighbor or even myself? Eh, once in a while, but certainly not always. Should we talk about power? Should we compare the accurate Christian ideas of power with our own behavior? Does our behavior reflect someone who submits to the authority of the king of the cosmos? Or, if we're honest, does our behavior reflect the heart that is generally trying to control the world around us? To gain the approval of other people. 
to protect ourselves and our all-too-important image and reputation, to consolidate and wield our power, to secure our financial power. Well, now we're getting real. When we finally get down to the bedrock of our hearts, we discover that we all too often have ideas and desires down there that actually look very little like our stock Christian answers to the six core ideas. How do we know? Just look at the eight indicators. Hey, Fish, are you saying that my debit card statement will tell me more about the true condition of my heart than my Bible study? Uh, generally, the answer is yep. Our bank statements do tell us more about the true ideas in our hearts than our church activities. If the point of our discipleship is to become more like the person of Jesus, that journey is far more than agreeing to accurate doctrinal statements. It's a journey of determining whether the actual ideas and desires in our soil align with those doctrinal statements. And now we come full circle to intimacy and community. Because if we go through the exercise of discovering that the base ideas and desires in our hearts don't always match up to what we think we believe, we're now ready for God to actually work in our hearts. How can I become a person who thinks of myself as a genuine child of God? How can I come to love my enemies and not murder them in my heart? What might it look like for my debit card statement to show a heart that is actually aligned with the ideas of my king? Well, by now it's obvious that transforming our ideas can't possibly be simply a matter of instruction. After all, we may well have a theologically accurate belief system learned through instruction. But for various reasons, those beliefs don't settle all the way down to the level of our ideas and desires. So here's the rub. Our base ideas and desires are often formed not through instruction, but through experience, through relationship. My struggle to think of myself as a child of God is not a doctrinal challenge. My heart is formed by being in relationship with others who relate to me as a child of God, who experience me as a child of God. This is why our earliest years are the most formative in our lives. A baby's heart is formed through experiencing other people, by being with them. This is the mystery of marriage. Two, becoming one through experiencing each other over time. This is how a debit card statement begins to reflect the heart of a person becoming more like Jesus. Budgeting classes are great. They're helpful. Being in a relationship with people who treat you like Jesus treats you is even better. Ideas in their heart are not always formed through information. They're usually formed through relationship and experience with God, with others, with ourselves, and even with creation. And they're formed for the better when our hearts are open-handed and vulnerable with people who genuinely seek our goodness. As you might imagine, studying and understanding idea systems has unbelievable implications on everything from evangelism to counseling, from political theory to government structures, from media to the arts, from parenting to conflict management and healthy marriages and friendships. Oftentimes, understanding someone else's true six core ideas can provide enormous insight into their perspectives and views of the world. If you have an atheist or agnostic friend or family member or maybe somebody who drives you crazy because they're on the other end of the political spectrum, trying to argue their theological or political position may not be particularly productive. Perhaps just listening to their story may provide some common ground. You might discover that your friend's theological or political position has far more to do with the unconscious ideas in their hearts formed by damaging or abandoned relationships more than by the position itself. If Dallas Willard and James Smith are right, 
And we are generally governed by the unconscious ideas and desires in our hearts, then the journey of a disciple is far more than belief statements and apologetics. Those are marvelous things, but as we've discovered, the deeper journey begins when we listen carefully to our hearts to determine if our ideas are even in sync with our beliefs. And if we're courageously curious, we invite our trusted communities into our hearts and stories with us. Just experiencing our community may be enough for some of our ideas to move towards the ideas of Jesus. It's a lifelong journey. It requires kindness, patience, a careful listening ear, time with God, with others, with ourselves, habits that encourage our efforts at being intimate, at being transparent. But it's a journey worth taking. And as we experience our hearts being formed, we become all the more patient, loving, and kind towards others on the same journey. In other words, we make disciples. Thanks for listening. For more information, check out soilandroots.org. And if you have a question or comment, email us at fish at soilandroots.org. We'll see you next time.